Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm Roger Pilon. I'm the director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies and your host for today's forum. Before we begin, uh, let me ask you to, as a courtesy to our speakers, to uh, please mute your um, cell phones. Thank you. We're here today to discuss Bond v. United States, uh, which is back before the Supreme Court for a second uh, time for argument next term, and in particular to dis uh, consider the question whether a treaty can increase the power of Congress. Those of you familiar with Cato's constitutional work know that we take seriously the doctrine of enumerated powers, the idea that Congress has only certain powers which have been delegated to it by the people that are enumerated in the Constitution, the balance remaining with the states or the people. That issue is squarely before the court in this most complicated and fascinating case. By way of brief background, the case arose when one Carol Ann Bond, a microbiologist, learned that her best friend was having an affair with her husband. So she uh, spread toxic chemicals on the woman's car and mailbox. Postal inspectors discovered the plot after they caught Bond on film stealing from the woman's mailbox. But rather than leave this caper to local law enforcement, uh, to resolve, federal prosecutors charged Bond with violating a statute that implements U.S. treaty obligations under the 1993 Chemical Weapons Convention. Bond challenged the federal government's power to charge her with a crime, arguing that Congress lacks constitutional authority to pass general criminal statutes and cannot somehow acquire that authority through a treaty. Before a court could reach this issue, however, there was a question whether Bond could even make that argument under the Tenth Amendment, which reaffirms again that any powers not delegated to Congress are reserved to the states or the people. On Bond's first trip to the Supreme Court, the court unanimously accepted the argument offered in an amicus brief by the Cato Institute, Center for Constitutional Jurisprudence, and there's uh, no reason uh, uh, in constitutional structure or history that someone can't use the Tenth Amendment to challenge the constitutionality of the statute under which she was convicted. On remand to the Philadelphia-based U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit, uh, the, um, uh, and now uh, withstanding to challenge that law, Bond raised the argument that Congress's limited and enumerated powers cannot be increased by treaties. We again filed that uh, case uh, in support of Bond. Unfortunately, the Third Circuit disagreed, if reluctantly, based on one sentence written by Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes in the 1920 case of Missouri v. Holland, which has been interpreted to mean that treaties can indeed expand Congress's powers. With Cato supporting her bid to return to the Supreme Court on that treaty power question, Bond's case reached the high court uh, again, now in a brief authored by Professor Nicholas Quinn Rosencrantz and joined by the Center for Constitutional Jurisprudence, the Atlantic Legal Foundation, and former Attorney General Edwin Meese we argue uh, that a treaty cannot give Congress the constitutional authority to charge Bond. To explain why, let's turn now to our guest today and to the author of our brief, Professor Rosencrantz. 
Professor Rosencrantz is a professor of law at Georgetown Law Center and a senior fellow here at the Cato Institute. He's a graduate of Yale, both the college and the law school. After law school, he clerked for Judge Frank Easterbrook on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit, and then for Justice Anthony Kennedy at the U.S. Supreme Court. After that, he served as an attorney advisor at the Office of Legal Counsel in the Justice Department before joining the Georgetown Law Faculty. Professor Rosencrantz has taught constitutional law in federal courts. His articles have appeared in the Harvard Law Review and the Stanford Law Review. He's currently developing a new theory of constitutional interpretation and judicial review. The first installment, entitled The Subjects of the Constitution, was published in the Stanford Law Review in May of 2010 and is already the single most downloaded article about constitutional interpretation, judicial review, and or federal courts in the history of SSRN. The second installment, The Objects of the Constitution, was published in May of 2011 also in the Stanford Law Review. And the comprehensive version is forthcoming as a book by Oxford University Press. Professor Rosencrantz often testifies before Congress as a constitutional expert, most recently before the Senate Judiciary Committee regarding the nomination of Justice Sotomayor. He's also filed briefs and presented oral arguments before the U.S. Supreme Court. His most recent Supreme Court brief was on behalf of the Cato Institute. He's a member of the New York Bar and the U.S. Supreme Court Bar. He's an associate fellow of Pearson College at Yale University. He also serves as co-chairman of the Board of Visitors of the Federalist Society. Please welcome Professor Rosencrantz. Thanks very much. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you, Roger, for putting this together. Uh, so I'm here in part because uh, I wrote this article, Executing the Treaty Power, in the Harvard Law Review in 2005 on this issue, and then uh, worked with Cato on the brief that we filed in the Bond case. I should just say uh, thank you to Ilya Shapiro and to the excellent folks here at Cato who helped put this brief together. We're quite happy with it. Uh, so I'm just going to restate the issue. Roger described the case perfectly, but I'll just restate it because it's somewhat shocking as an issue, really. Uh, the issue is um, uh, if Congress lacks the power to do something today, but then the president enters into a treaty promising that we will do that thing tomorrow, uh, does Congress automatically then get the power to do that thing? Uh, or to maybe put a finer point on it, can the treaty increase the power of Congress, enhance the power of Congress? That's, the ish, that's what's at issue here. So Mrs. Bond says, um, Mrs. Bond is um, being tried under the Chemical Weapons Convention Implementation Act. Mrs. Bond says, where does Congress get power to enact this thing? Where, which of the enumerated powers justifies this statute? And the government says, uh, even if, as a general matter, we wouldn't have power to enact this thing, even if this is presumptively beyond Congress, even if we assume this is beyond Congress's power to enact um, in general, it's fine now. And the reason is there's this treaty. So we entered into this treaty, the Chemical Weapons Convention, and thus Congress has power to pass this, to enact this Chemical Weapons Convention Implementation Act 
even if it would have lacked the power before. So that's, the, that's what's at issue in the case. Missouri v. Holland in 1920, Justice Holmes seemed to say that, in fact, the answer is yes. If a treaty promises that Congress will do something, Congress automatically gets the power to do that thing. Justice Holmes seemed to say. Now, he seemed to say it in a single sentence in 1920 with no citation, no reasoning whatsoever, just a sentence. Uh, but it seems to say that if um, the president makes such a promise, then Congress automatically gets that power. And I think that's wrong. So I wrote an article in 2005 saying that was <coughs> And Mrs. Bond is now arguing that that's wrong, and we are supporting that uh, claim. And I'm just going to make the point here. Uh, I'm just going to make for you the textual point and then the structural point. And that should really, uh, I think, suffice for this. Textual point's pretty straightforward. The relevant clauses of the Constitution here are the necessary and proper clause and the treaty clause. And I'll just, now again, Justice Holmes could not be bothered actually even to quote these clauses or gesture toward them, but I'm gonna give you the, just the language so you can hear what is at issue. The necessary and proper clause, Congress shall have power to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers and all other powers vested by this Constitution in the government of the United States or in any department or officer thereof. Now, so again, uh, carrying into execution, the foregoing powers, those are the ones that are listed earlier in Article I, Section 8, nothing about treaties or earlier in Article I, Section 8, so that's not relevant. Um, and all other powers vested by this Constitution in the government of the United States, that is relevant. So the treaty power is another power vested in the Constitution, so it does connect up with or refer to the treaty power. And I'll just give you that, that's in Article Two. The president shall have power by and with the advice and consent of the Senate to make treaties, provided two-thirds of the senators present concur. And so uh, we could connect those two clauses grammatically, try to see how they fit together. Here's how they fit together as a matter of grammar. The Congress shall have power to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution, dot, 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 the president's power to make treaties. And I think when we do this, it becomes clear that the important words, the crucial words, are the words to make, to make treaties. This is, this is necessary and proper for carrying into execution the president's power to make treaties. This would clearly include, for example, you know, an appropriation of money sending an ambassador to negotiate a treaty. That would be necessary and proper to the making of a treaty. But... That's not what is at issue here. So what is, what's at issue here is Congress's power to implement a treaty that has already been made. Right? This treaty has already made. There's no sense in which this statute, the Chemical Weapons Convention Implementation Act, helps you to make that treaty. The treaty's already made. Um, so uh, this is a, just a misreading of the way these clauses fit together. This is a, uh, Congress has the power to uh, make laws to help make treaties but there's no freestanding power to help execute treaties. Uh, so this is a pretty straightforward textual point. The Supreme Court saw this point clearly in a bit, when it was looking at a bit of parallel statutory language. So in Patterson v. McLean Credit Union, the court was looking at a statute that concerned the right to make contracts. 
sense. Now you can tell that's similar, right? It's got the same key infinitive verb to make. And moreover, a, a, a non-self-executing treaty is actually in the nature of a contract. They're kind of similar. It's like a contract between uh, nations. So trying to figure out what the right to make contracts entails, here's the Supreme Court, quote, the right to make contracts does not extend as a matter of either logic or semantics to conduct after the contract relation has been established, including breach of the terms of the contract. Such post-formation conduct does not involve the right to make a contract, but rather implicates the performance of established contract obligations. And the point's exactly the same here. The power to make treaties does not extend as a matter of logic or semantics to the implementation of treaties already made. So that's the clear textual point that it, the, uh, the only clauses anybody's ever pointed to for this purported Missouri v. Holland power are these two clauses, and they just don't do the work. They just do not do the work of giving Congress the power to implement treaties already made. That's the textual point. Now, I'm just going to make the basic structural point as well. You know, here at the Cato Institute, I'm going to go ahead and guess that many of you have uh, intuited the structural point already. But, um, you know, this is th this Missouri v. Holland idea is kind of obviously in deep, deep tension with the premise of enumerated powers and with the Tenth Amendment premise that some powers are reserved, right? The federal government does not have power over everything. So, uh, you know, if this were right, if Missouri v. Holland is right, then uh, this is a, like a wish for more wishes power. Um, the president just needs to find a foreign sovereign, can be any foreign sovereign, you know, Zimbabwe or whatever, and can agree, you know, as to something like regulating guns near schools. Now, the court has said Congress lacks the power to do that in a case called U.S. v. Lopez, but, you know, if the president in Zimbabwe agree that it's important to regulate guns near schools, suddenly Congress would get that power under Missouri v. Holland. Um, you know, and that's the tip of the iceberg. You can imagine, uh, you know, an agreement simply to regulate the citizenry to maximize collective welfare or something, and then you'd have Congress would have plenary legislative power, theoretically, under Missouri v. Holland. It just seems like that can't be right. It's intention with all kinds of canonical statements that the, um, the, the powers of Congress are limited and defined and enumerated and so forth. So it seems like this is in deep tension with some basic structural ideas. Um, you know, another way to put the point is um, Congress's power is limited to those things herein granted. It's an enumeration. Congress's power is limited to those things herein granted in the Constitution. As a general matter, that list can only be increased by constitutional amendment. And that's happened a number of times. So there are a number of constitutional amendments that say Congress shall have power to right, enforce this amendment. Uh, so it's happened a number of times. That's the way Congress gets new powers via constitutional amendment. But, and, and of course, Article 5, the mechanism for amending the Constitution, very elaborate, hard to do, but it has been done a number of times. The mechanism for making a treaty is much easier. So on Missouri v. Holland, if that were right, um, you have the Article 5 mechanism for increasing Congress's power. 
And then you have this other mechanism, this much easier mechanism if you can just find a friendly, you know, nation who wants to agree with you. So, um, you know, another way to put this point is it's just a subversion of Article 5. It's just a way of enhancing Congress's power without bothering to amend the Constitution. It's kind of a, a, a circumvention of Article 5. Now, um, so if it's weird to think that uh, a treaty can increase the power of Congress, um, surely it's doubly strange <clears throat> to think that the president can decrease the power of Congress and decrease it unilaterally and thus render statutes unconstitutional. But consider that also follows from Missouri v. Holland. The, um, the conventional wisdom is that uh, the president can abrogate a treaty unilaterally for any reason at all. The president decides it's no longer a good treaty. But under Missouri v. Holland, in theory, right, you enter into the treaty, Congress gets the new power and passes a statute pursuant to it, and then at some point the president decides he doesn't like the treaty anymore, abrogates the treaty, and now what? Has the statute now been rendered unconstitutional? Isn't that odd? As a general matter, the president gets to, you know, sign or veto bills, but that's the end of his legislative involvement. Once it becomes a law, it's a law. But not this category. For this category of statute, the president gets to, um, gets to render the statute unconstitutional anytime he wants, for any reason or no reason, just by um, uh, abrogating the treaty. Isn't that strange to think? And if that's strange, consider the president's not the only person who gets to do that. So foreign sovereigns also can abrogate treaties. <clears throat> so uh, wouldn't the framers have found it surprising to imagine that a federal statute duly passed by both the House of Representatives and the Senate, signed by the president, law of the land here in the United States, might be rendered unconstitutional at some later date at the sole discretion of, for example, the King of England. And yet, that too follows from Missouri v. Holland, right? When the, when the other sovereign decides he doesn't like the treaty anymore, suddenly our statute's rendered unconstitutional. It just cannot be right. After all, uh, um, uh, ending foreign control over domestic legislation was actually the first idea in the Declaration of Independence. Hard to imagine that they thought the King of England was going to have that power. Um, so, and then let me just, I'll make the structural point one last way. Uh, you know, another way to think about this is the Missouri Holland idea creates this doubly perverse incentive. There are two things that the framers were deeply concerned about. One is uh, the tendency of legislative power to increase, the danger that the legislature can pull everything into its impetuous vortex. They were very worried about that. We all know that was a big concern of the framers. Second big concern of the framers was international entanglements. They were very nervous about international entanglements. They made treaties hard to enter into. They were worried about it. So if you think about the framers having these two deep concerns, uh, isn't it strange to think they created a system with this doubly perverse incentive where the president's going to want to enter into new international entanglements exactly so that there can be more domestic legislative power in Congress. This kind of perverse incentive to do these two things that the framers did not want done, right? More, in, more international entanglements precisely to get more domestic legislative power. Uh, I think the Constitution should not be interpreted to have this kind of 
doubly perverse incentive. So that's just another way to see the structural point. I'd say the text and the structure here cohere to tell us that a treaty really cannot <clears throat> increase the legislative power of Congress. Congress's powers are fixed and defined, and there's a treaty cannot do anything to change that. That's my claim, and that's our claim in our uh, green brief here in bonds. So I think I'll um, subside there. I'd love to hear the judge talk about this. Thank you very much, Nick. We're now going to hear from Judge Alex Kaczynski. Uh, he is chief judge of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, court on which he has served since the Senate confirmed him in November of 1985. He was born in Bucharest, Romania, and came to America when he was 12, together with his parents, both Holocaust survivors. Judge Kaczynski is a graduate of UCLA, both the college and the law school. From there, he clerked uh, for then-Judge Anthony Kennedy on the Ninth Circuit, and the next year for Chief Judge Warren, Chief Justice Warren Burger on the U.S. Supreme Court. After a few years in private practice, he served as deputy legal counsel in the office of President-elect Reagan. He then joined the new administration to be assistant counsel in the White House Counsel's Office and then special counsel the Merit uh, Systems Protection Board, where he served until President Reagan nominated him for a seat on the ever-interesting Ninth Circuit <laughs> Court of Appeals. I should note, too, that uh, in all this time, Judge Kaczynski has been no stranger at the Cato Institute. In fact, in 2011, <coughs> he gave our prestigious 10th Annual B. Kenneth Simon Lecture in Constitutional Thought. Please welcome Judge Alex Kaczynski. Thank you, Roger. It's a real pleasure to be here. Um, I uh, never cease to be impressed by the Cato audiences. Uh, I mean, if I uh, can, it's hard to think of a more theoretical uh, uh, subject than the one we're discussing today. Important, certainly, but uh, theoretical and abstract. And I thought maybe uh, I'd come here and there'd be three people in the audience interested. So I, I, am, I am very impressed. Uh, uh, and I understand we're also uh, appearing live, trying to say hi to my grandchildren. Uh, <laughs> and we're also being tweeted. So um, I'll try to sp speak in um, bursts of 140 characters. <laughs> you know, it must be a challenge uh, uh, for, some, uh, for some professors, uh, like Professor Epstein, who never <laughs> has periods at all, you know, to speak in an age of tweeting. But uh, uh, fortunately, Professor Rosenkranz was very clear. And uh, I find myself a little bit um, uh, of a difficult position here because I agree with every word he said. And um, in fact, I'd probably go farther and probably, you know, if it were up to me and I were interpreting uh, the Constitution uh, according to my own devices, rather than having to follow precedent. Uh, <laughs> I'd strike down most of what the federal government does and uh, uh, much of what the states do as well. Uh, <laughs> but um, that's not the world we live in, and uh, I, I, I thought I would talk a little bit about uh, the cases that actually appears and as it actually um, will be presented in the Supreme Court, just to give a preview of what I think will be, will, will be the issues, because I think Professor Rosenkranz has, has uh, framed the question very well. In fact, I must 
Um, I must congratulate Professor Rosenkranz. A lot of professors write law review articles, and they, um, they get published, and they never heard from again. <laughs> Most of them are never heard from again. But uh, including those in the, in the prestigious Harvard Law Review, uh, never heard from again. But here it is. It's, it's interesting. This is a Law Review article, and again, a highly abstract and theoretical topic that if you just read the article, you would think, uh, well, yeah, sure, interesting, but uh, when was this going to ever arise again? So I, I uh, in, a, in, a, in a practical sense, uh, so I, I suspect that, that Professor Rosenkranz also has friends in the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Eastern <laughs> District of Pennsylvania, uh, because uh, I, I can't think of a more perfect case uh, to sort of to uh, the perfect storm, I would say. To, to, uh, so here's this woman who has a spat, I would say, uh, with her husband. Um, you know, he acts in a truly caddish way, getting her friend pregnant. Uh, ooh, yeah, I know, it's, it's, it's terrible, and, you know, her heart goes out to her. Uh, but she then does something truly, uh, I mean, she doesn't do the usual thing. She doesn't pick up a gun, <laughs> uh, you know, some, do the uh, all-American thing like that. Uh, <laughs> uh, 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 she uses poison, uh, and, you know, some pretty nasty poisons, and she spreads them all over this woman's, um, the, the, uh, the friends, you know, the friends' locker, uh, and, and other locations. Mailbox. Mailbox, that's what it is. Mailbox, you know, but uh, places where lots of people can, you know, she, she really, anyway. Uh, so she, she gets prosecuted then. They could easily have treated this just like any other domestic relations violence case and handed it over to, to uh, or have it handled by the, by the state authorities. And I'm sure the Pennsylvania courts would have, um, uh, you know, she no doubt would have gotten convicted because uh, she looks like she's quite guilty. And, um, and that would have been the end of the case. But no, they decide to go uh, under, um, uh, proceed under, prosecute under federal law. And here I'm going to plug my, one of my own articles, uh, also, uh, of course, published by Cato, uh, where I, uh, that I published with my former law clerk, um, uh, Misha Zaitlin, who an uh, article by the name of... Um, um, you two are a federal criminal, and uh, it's worth reading. I, I, I commend it. <laughs> it's published by Cato. And, and it, it talks about the ever-expanding uh, tendency to criminalize uh, conduct and to make it uh, not just a crime, but a federal crime. And the ex ever-expanding tendency for prosecutors to then reach the outer limits of those statutes and to prosecute things that really could and should be prosecuted, if at all, uh, uh, domestically uh, by, by in, the, in, the, in the state courts. Why? Uh, well, uh, um, one of the reasons is the punishments are often uh, much more severe uh, uh, under the federal system. So I don't know what happened in this case, but I suspect that's what happened, that, that they wanted to uh, go after her, and uh, they wanted to, to send a, a strong message. Maybe she would get a more serious punishment. So there we are. A case is created. And Professor Rosenkranz's article, once again, you know, then comes into full force. And if you read the Third Circuit opinion, he gets a cite in Judge uh, Jordan's um, a majority opinion, it's a footnote nine, and then he gets two citations 
in Judge Ambrose's concurrence, including one that says, like Nick Rosencrantz, like Professor Rosencrantz said, I hope the Supreme <laughs> Court takes this case and clarifies this, uh, this, um, uh, this area of the law. And of course, Professor Rosencrantz's article uh, does go after uh, Justice Holmes and his statement in Missouri is hung. I wish to acknowledge, by the way, my, my former law clerk, my friend, my colleague, uh, Judge Mark Holmes, and absolve him of any responsibility. <laughs> he is not uh, any relation to Justice Holmes. I also want to, this is Judge Mark Van Dyke Holmes, and I want to absolve him of having conferred any titles of nobility lately. <laughs> so I, I just want to make this clear for the record. Uh, uh, in any event, so 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 here we are. So so I, it's it's a freak case, and as has been famously said, uh, uh, hard cases and freak cases make sometimes difficult and sometimes bad law, and sometimes they are the object of uh, you know an occasion to make good law as well. But I think we need to keep in mind that it's in a sense in a, is a sort of free case and ask ourselves whether this is the right occasion for the Supreme Court to reconsider um, what the uh, Supreme Court said in Missouri versus, uh, versus um, Holland. Uh, now, the, the, um, the thing we have to do is keep in mind that Missouri versus Holland was decided a long time ago. And if you look at uh, Judge, and again, I, I, don't have, I don't have the expertise that, uh, uh, Professor Rosenkranz has here, but but I I've read the Third Circuit opinion, and uh, what uh, Judge Jordan points out in the majority opinion is that, uh, that the case was written, Missouri uh, 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 was written at a time when our understanding of what the federal government's treaty power is, what its power under, uh, is under the treaty clause, was much narrower than it is today, and he cites at. Um, uh, at um, um, page, um, uh, well, I can't read the pages uh, by the facts, but anyway, he, uh, in the part two of the opinion, he it, it cites um, the, the, uh, uh, the, the restatement third, I'm sorry, yeah, it's a, uh, yeah, the third restatement uh, of uh, foreign relations which basically takes a position today that the Constitution does not require an international agreement to deal only with matters of international concern. That is the modern view. So basically, under the current understanding of what the treaty power is, uh, there are no limits on what the, the, the power of the uh, uh, federal government is in, in enacting treaties. And that's something worth keeping in mind. That was not the understanding that was prevailing at the time Justice Holmes decided Missouri versus Holland. So when he said, when Congress acts under the treaty power, then legislation enacted under, uh, there's no doubt as to its constitutionality, he was speaking against that background, the background uh, of uh, having uh, uh, limited treaty power, power that is not unlimited, that the treaty power itself would be subject to certain uh, uh, subjects dealing with foreign relations. Now, under the current understanding, that limitation no longer exists. And I, I'm not going to go beyond, beyond or behind the third restatement, uh, because again, I'm not an expert as to why they come to that conclusion. But I might just suggest that maybe the place to start 
uh, in thinking about these issues is not at the implementing legislation, but to think about the power of the federal government to, legis uh, to, to enter into treaties at all, and that if the federal government uh, enters a treaty that does some of the things that uh, Professor Rosenkranz has suggested, like says, uh, uh, let's say, the president, the, uh, the, uh, the, the uh, queen uh, of Lingerland and, uh, and the Senate agree that uh, we have a treaty to do good and to do right and to do justice or to uh, perhaps uh, ban guns from schools or prevent domestic violence, uh, then maybe that treaty ought to be challenged as being beyond the treaty power. And that if we do that, and if we limit the treaty power to the subjects that are properly the subject, that are properly uh, uh, the proper objects of, of, uh, of the treaty power, we might not have the kind of difficult situations uh, as uh, Professor Rosenkranz posits in his article, in his brief. So that's, that's, that's the first point I would make, that, that maybe we are actually looking at the wrong end of the telescope. Now, the second thing I would suggest is that it is not that strange to have a situation where the federal government has certain additional powers depending on uh, what, what the source of authority is. We saw that in the Affordable Care case. Uh, there was a uh, uh, consensus of the Supreme Court that the, the legislation was not, was beyond the commerce power of the United States, and yet the majority of the courts found it uh, sustainable under the tax power. And it makes a certain degree of sense to say that the power to, 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 to make treaties uh, uh, will enhance the power of the federal government to deal with certain subjects that may not be otherwise available to it under the police power. And the, the Missouri versus Holland case is actually a, a, a good illustration of that. Um, what happened, uh, the history of the case, and I must tell you, I got my, my uh, um, lest I sound too erudite, I read this in Wikipedia this morning, so, <laughs> uh, so, so, so I, I, if I'm wrong about this, um, somebody needs to get on Wikipedia and change, <laughs> uh, and change it. But according to Wikipedia, what happened is was an earlier statute. Uh, it, uh, the, 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 the case dealt with the Migratory Bird Act, and um, Congress passed a law uh, prohibiting the taking of certain migratory birds. And uh, that was struck down by the courts as being beyond the police power of the, uh, of the federal government. And of course, today that wouldn't, uh, I can't imagine that would happen, but uh, uh, that's what happened. So Congress looked for a different way, looked for a way around uh, the, this limitation uh, that the courts had imposed. And so they got the king then of England to agree, because uh, remember the king of England, uh, well, the, the queen is still the queen of Canada. Uh, and at that time, um, uh, the relation between Canada and England was such that England handled the foreign relations for Canada. So we entered into a treaty with, with the king of England, giving the very power or, or, or agreeing to to, uh, to, uh, to regulate migratory birds. Uh, these are birds that would come, that would fly across the border from Canada, land here. And obviously, this is something that affected Canada. If we killed all the geese uh, before they had a chance to go back to Canada, this, this was something of, of uh, concern to Canadians. And 
it seems to me a, a pretty reasonable exercise of the treaty power. This is, you know, this is not uh, regulating the use of firearms uh, uh, in, uh, in, in Missouri. This was a, an attempt to keep relations with a neighbor, uh, uh, Canada, uh, to keep to keep friendly relations with the neighbor by avoiding the the, the, the killing of, of birds, um, so it is in that context where where the where the where the, where the, where the um, federal government is exercising a power which at that time went beyond what the courts had held was the police power of the state, but clearly clearly implicated a, a federal concern. Uh, uh, by, 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 by dealing with, uh, with these migratory birds, birds that don't respect borders, birds that, birds that don't stop at border checkpoints and ask permission to come in or permission to go back. Uh, so, so it makes perfect sense. So will, before we criticize home too much, we have to, we have to uh, justice homes too much, we have to sort of think about the context. And the, 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 um, the, the, the consequence of this is that uh, what you know? What they have is a statute there that expanded somewhat the power of the of the federal government uh, dealing with that particular subject, which is a proper subject for foreign relations. You know, and to me, I think that's sort of a reasonable approach to say that there may be areas that involve domestic power, domestic authority, that the Federal government does not have, let's say, under the Commerce Clause or any other enumerated powers, but it deals with something that is truly of genuine international concern. And therefore, for purposes of serving that international concern, uh, uh, you, you, um, uh, the, the power of the federal government is slightly expanded to deal with that. Now, it's hard to apply that to situations like carrying guns in schools or uh, WAWA, the, the Violence Against Women's Act, uh, Women Act, because you know those are not guns; don't fly across the border. But it has to be something that is that is truly, genuinely dealing with uh, uh, with the proper subject of foreign relations. And you know, I would think something perhaps like uh, um, uh, airplane travel. Uh, airplanes uh, travel uh, 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 through great spaces. Uh, uh, if somebody uh, pours a poison in a plane in the United States, uh, it lands in England, or, or, or uh, you know, toxic chemicals, or perhaps, uh, perhaps uh, um, um, uh, inv invasive species, or they uh, get into a plane abroad and come here. So it seems to me that there are subjects that, in themselves, might not uh, m might not uh, be within the power of the federal government to regulate domestically. But when they touch matters of international uh, concern, they 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 are okay. So what do we have here? We have a statute where the federal government uh, enters into convention to ban or to control the use of chemical weapons, of chemical weapons. Clearly a subject of uh, proper subject of international uh, concern. Uh, chemical weapons are easy to transport. They can be airborne. They can fly across the, uh, the if released in the air, they, uh, or toxic chemicals, uh, if released in the air, they can, they, can, they can travel across state borders. They can travel across international borders. If loaded into a plane, they can be, uh, they, they, they can be released uh, in other countries and vice versa. Uh, chemical weapons or uh, toxic chemicals that are concealed in planes 
in France or, uh, uh, or England or Canada can be released in this country. So this is obviously something of, of, of a legitimate uh, concern as a matter of international relations. So I look at uh, Judge Randell's concurring opinion in, in, uh, in Bond, and what she says is the way we ought to look at this case, and again, I, I, I don't want to endorse this personally, but I think it's a reasonable way to look at the case, and I think it, uh, I will stop with that, and, 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 uh, and we can have a conversation about it. And the, uh, the question we first ask is, is this a proper subject of international relations? The answer is clearly yes. And the second question we then ask is, is this statute properly designed to implement that treaty that deals with the subject of the international relations? The answer is yes. It's a statute that bans, you know, it doesn't just ban the taking of these things across borders, because we know that toxic chemicals are very dangerous things. They can be concealed, they can be transported. Uh, so so you, what you want to do is uh, extirpate the evil at its root. So you don't want anybody dealing with, uh, with chemical weapons because once they are in private hands, they can be so uh, easily transported to, to, to other areas. And of course, what, ha what happens here that can be transported abroad applies vice versa. It could be, these things could be brought into our country. So this is of uh, legitimate concern. So the third question then becomes, well, uh, we have a prosecution where a U.S. attorney uh, chooses or a, 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 the federal government chooses to prosecute somebody under a statute that's validly enacted, under a treaty that's validly adopted, both of which deal with international concerns, but happens to be applied in a domestic context. And the answer um, uh, Judge Randell gives, and I think it's a good answer, is uh, look at Gonzalez versus Reich. And that was what the Supreme Court said. Once something, this is the uh, case involving the growing of marijuana in your backyard. Uh, and what the Supreme Court said is once there's something within the uh, commerce power of the United States, we don't look at individual applications of the statute. There's no such thing as an invalid application of a valid statute. If Congress has the power to adopt the statute uh, within its Congress power, the fact that the very thing that is now being prosecuted or regulated happens to be domestic is, um, uh, is among the consequence. And of course, they rely in that case on what I think is the worst case. And I, I was cited about uh, this in Atlantic Magazine. Uh, they asked me, what is the worst unknown opinion in the, uh, from the Supreme Court? And this was Wicked versus Fulburn. And I read it in law school, and I thought it was the worst opinion ever. And I still think it's the worst <laughs> opinion ever. And, and so I'm not here to endorse Wicked versus Fulburn. But once you have Wicked versus Fulburn saying, you remember that's the guy who grew and ate his own wheat. And the <laughs> uh, they, uh, uh, Supreme Court says, oh, yes, that is within, uh, uh, um, uh, within the commerce power because by eating the wheat on his own property, he's engaging in interstate commerce. There you have it, folks. I thought the next time they looked at it, they would laugh. But the next time they look at it, they, in Gonzalez's rights, they endorsed it. So once you have that kind of thinking, it seems to me that looking at individual instances of how the statutes are applied is, is, uh, is uh, uh, um, you know, is, is not a, a valid exercise. Uh, let me just make one more point, because I, I, I think this is important. Uh, Professor Rosenkranz talked about 
the appearing and disappearing power, uh, let's say the a treaty is abrogated, does that then abrogate the power of Congress to pass a statute and thereby invalidate a statute? Or let's say the king of, uh, um, or, or, the, or the queen of England abrogates a treaty, would that, would that invalidate the statute? I think the answer is that's not a problem because once the statute is passed under a proper exercise of the uh, 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 treaty power, it becomes a valid domestic statute. And we look at questions of power and authority of the statute at the moment of adoption. It does not then become uh, unconstitutional because the treaty is abrogated. I think the statute, once adopted uh, with the proper power, stays. Uh, it can be repealed, but it does not get automatically revealed and invalidated. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Judge Kaczynski. I'm now going to invite uh, uh, Nick Rosencrantz back to the podium to give uh, five minutes or so of response to Judge Kaczynski's inventive commentary. <laughs> and then we're going to open it up a little bit of discussion between the two of them and then to uh, questions from the audience before we break for lunch. So, Professor Rosencrantz, have at it. Okay. So uh, the judge and I are going out of our way to the extent possible to disagree, but um, we actually agree on much of this. But let me pick up on some of his uh, remarks, which were uh, very interesting and thought-provoking. And I agree with a lot of them, but they're um, to the side a bit of my argument. Um, first, let, I, I want to dispel right away the suggestion that I am any sort of friend with the prosecutor. So <laughs> I don't actually know that person at all, but I do want to say if you are watching, thank you for bringing this case. I'm, it's, uh, I'm delighted about it, but I had nothing to do with it. I'm very happy about the whole thing. Um, it is, though, interesting to wonder quite what was going on in that U.S. Attorney's Office or quite how this came to pass. I'm sure it's true that uh, the potential sentences were greater, but there are a number of, and the judge points out this is kind of a freak case. It's interesting to uh, note some of the ways in which it's a freak case and maybe how that came to pass. Uh, so obviously when Mrs. Bond spread these chemicals on the doorknob and whatnot, there's all kinds of state crime, right? These are many different state crimes, and I'm sure the folks in Pennsylvania would have been happy to prosecute Mrs. Bond, but some ambitious assistant U.S. attorney decided to prosecute her under the Chemical Weapons Convention Implementation Act. Why? Um, you know, probably because the sentence was higher. And I think there's another possible explanation as well. I believe that when you prosecute somebody under this statute, that, as it were, counts as a terrorism prosecution. And you get to say, if you're the assistant U.S. attorney, I've prosecuted a terrorism case. And if you're the President Obama, you get to say, we've prosecuted X number of terrorism cases. So you know, I actually think there probably are some institutional reasons why this might have been an appealing strategy for the assistant U.S. attorney. Again, it's just speculation. I don't uh, know that. Yeah, Elia. Uh, I think there was something also about the federal postal inspectors were the first ones to discover it. That's true, too. Quite right. So um, she spread chemicals uh, in a number of places, but one such place was the mailbox. 
and the US government does not like it when you mess with the mail. So the postal inspectors uh, put up some video cameras and I guess caught her in the act spreading some chemicals on the mailbox. You know, just by the way, shouldn't necessarily affect your legal analysis, but you know, just may be interested to know, she did not do a lot of harm with these chemicals. So um, the woman successfully avoided the chemicals on all but one occasion, I believe, and on that one occasion got a bit of a thumb burn and ran some cold water over it. So as I, as I understand it, was not actually that. So, but this is a great, great case for this issue because it feels so local, right? Feels so obviously local, feels like it's not of international concern at all, like of national concern at all, let alone international concern, this little domestic uh, dispute. Um, it's just gonna, it'll feel to the justices as though something has gone wrong when this is a federal case. So that's great for us. Now, here's another kind of quirk of this case. The federal government, the US attorney, um, expressly said, we're not relying on the Commerce Clause. We're not relying on the Commerce Clause for this statute. We don't think, we're, we're not claiming that this is a regulation of interstate commerce. We are instead only claiming that we gain this power because of this treaty. Now, that was an odd decision, wasn't it? I mean, this is at least plausible, there was at least a plausible kind of commerce argument to make about whether the chemicals traveled in interstate commerce or whatever. Um, why did the government um, expressly disclaim that? I'm not sure at all, but here's some you know, rank speculation about it. When this case was pending, uh, so was Obamacare. And I think the government thought to itself, you know, the Commerce Clause argument's a little tricky, actually. It's a little tricky given the Obamacare case, and I'm not sure we want to muddy the waters with some ag particularly aggressive Commerce Clause argument, whereas the treaty argument's very straightforward and easy. See Missouri v. Holland. Now, a year later, I am sure they regret it. So I am sure they wish they were on the Commerce Clause horse rather than the treaty horse. It now turns out that the treaty point is difficult and the court is interested in it. Uh, so I'm sure they, they probably regret the entire thing, but they especially regret, I think, um, that they disclaimed any reliance on the Commerce Clause. They will no doubt try to resuscitate that argument in front of the Supreme Court, query whether the court will um, put up with that. I think and hope not, but who knows. So um, in a way, this is a perfect case for our uh, issue. You know, now the judge points out, and rightly, this question, this is a slightly esoteric uh, point, but it's pretty important, this question of facial versus as applied challenges. The judge is quite right, you know, as a matter of uh, doctrine, and I actually think as a matter of first principles, um, Mrs. Bond should not be able to come in and say, uh, you know, even if this is right, even if the statute's okay in general, it's not okay as applied to me. Um, because I don't think that's the right way to talk about the inquiry. This is a question of congressional power. And if it's a question of congressional power, it doesn't actually matter who the statute is applied to, what the facts of this case are. If the Constitution was violated here, it was violated on the day when Congress enacted this thing and exceeded its power. It doesn't really have to do with how local Mrs. Bond's facts are, although those are great atmospherics, right? Those are great atmospherics. But so um, Mrs. Bond is trying to get some mileage out of the fact that her facts are quite 
local, just as Mrs. Rach tried to get some mileage out of those facts, and the court didn't, uh, wasn't having any of it. But I, so I don't think that's the point. I think the point is Congress exceeded its power by enacting this thing, period. Uh, although, you know, if you read the briefs, you could be confused about that, and there certainly is some language suggesting that Mrs. Bond's interested in uh, um, bringing an as-applied uh, challenge. Okay. Um, and the second thing I want to say is the judge points out that we're talking about legislative power, Congress's power pursuant to treaty. Maybe we ought to be talking about the scope of the treaty power to begin with. Uh, the judge points out the restatement third seems to suggest that there are no subject matter limitations on treaties at all. At all. It doesn't have to be particularly international. It doesn't have to really have anything to do with, with anything international. Any treaty is fine, per the restatement third, and the judge suggests maybe that's wrong. Um, yeah, I certainly agree with that. Maybe that is wrong. Maybe that is wrong. Um, but, as, but, uh, but I've sort of bracketed that for purposes of this. I bracketed it in the article. I just accepted that as the conventional wisdom. And we bracket it for purposes of the case because, as the judge points out, this treaty is clearly within the treaty power. This treaty is clearly within the treaty power. So nobody's arguing that we can't enter into a treaty about chemical weapons, uh, though maybe we shouldn't be able to enter into a treaty about guns near schools or whatever. So yes, I think there's uh, certainly reason to be skeptical about the restatement, but that's not, a, not quite at issue in this case. Now, even if we did change our view of the scope of the treaty power and got back to some kind of originalist view of that, I think we'd also, we'd probably change our view, or you could imagine changing our view of the commerce power and getting back to some originalist view of that. I do think if we got all these things exactly right, we would still have a gap. So I do actually think that there is power to enter into certain treaties that promise to do things that maybe go beyond enumerated powers. Or rather, I think that the scope of the treaty power and the scope of Congress's power under Article 1, Section 8 do not, are not necessarily exactly the same. And as soon as they're not exactly the same, we have this issue. As soon as it's possible to make a promise that you couldn't otherwise keep, with this issue arises. So it arose in 1920 in Missouri v. Holland when they had a different view of the treaty power, but also a different view of the commerce power. And here it is arising in 2005 when we have a greatly expanded view of both, but still a gap, gap between what you can promise and what you can do. And that's what raises this issue. So, uh, so, um, it, so I want to uh, agree with the judge that we may not be right about the scope of the treaty power, but this issue still arises. Um, now, the one, let me see. Um, uh, so, um, I guess actually, oh, so um, Missouri v. Holland, the judge actually told you the facts of the case about these migratory birds. The important fact I want to bring to your attention about this, though, is this was exactly an instantiation of the perverse incentives that I was describing. So, um, and in these, on these facts, it's crystal clear that we entered into this treaty precisely to get domestic legislative power precisely to be able to enact the statute that we otherwise didn't have power to enact. So even though it does indeed feel like a legitimate treaty in its, in its subject matter, it's about birds that fly across borders, um, this was not a treaty motivated by a desire for international harmony. This is a treaty motivated by a desire for enhanced domestic legislative power. And that should make you nervous. I mean, it should have made people nervous in 1920. So that's uh, the concern. Um, 
Now, uh, the, the judge said something very interesting at the end, and it's not a thing that I talk about in the brief, but you know, I'd love to talk about it more. Um, the question is, uh, if Missouri v. Holland is right, what happens when the treaty is abrogated by, say, the president or the king of England? And I asserted earlier that the answer is the statute somehow rendered unconstitutional by that. And isn't that odd and paradoxical? Doesn't that seem odd and paradoxical? The judge says, well, no, that's not what happens. The statute remains, the statute remains good law even though now the treaty is gone. And that is, I think, a plausible answer, but to me that's equally paradoxical. I mean, isn't that strange to think as well that um, you know, as you're trying to evaluate a statute, it might turn on the year it was enacted. So you'd say, well, is this statute valid or not? Well, because it was passed, you know, you can imagine that a treaty exists from 1911 to 1912 or something, and then it's abrogated. But during that year, Congress passes some new statute, and that statute lives on the books then forever, even though Congress couldn't reenact that statute today because they would lack the power. Um, you know, you might even ask, does Congress have the power to repeal that statute under this theory, since they don't generally have power over migratory birds? I mean, I, so I guess I think that's an equally paradoxical kind of answer to this problem. And you know, I think it pushes us in the direction of, well, wait a second, maybe a treaty can't increase the power of Congress at all, and thus it can't decrease. But it's certainly an interesting theoretical problem. What do you do when the powers of Congress shrink, if they, in fact, can shrink this way? Uh, so very interesting, thought-provoking idea. I'm not sure the answer to that. Okay. Thanks so much. All right. Um, Alex, any response or should No, we... I think we've joined the issue. Okay, good. Let's then open it up to you folks. Um, let me give you a couple of ground rules. First of all, please wait till the microphone gets to you. Raise your hand and wait till the microphone gets to you um, so that everyone in the room and the audience watching can hear your question. <coughs> and give us your name and any affiliation that you may have. So, have at it. Right here, fellow in the, can you wait till the microphone gets to you, please? Lewis often retired. Once upon a time, a student at Gulk. Um, Could you stand up, and that way I can sure. see, your, see your mouth move, and I can more easily understand. Okay. Thank you. So it's been 90-plus years uh, since Missouri v. Holland, and now this case. In those intervening 93 years, did anything ever turn on it? Did people go to court and rely upon it? Are there sites for it? And how about prospectively? Suppose your view prevails, Ms. Bond leaves jail or whatever. Um, do you know other treaties? Can you see other treaties there that had enacting legislation or something and other things will fall like dominoes in turn? And what happens to the treaty if we can't fulfill our obligations under the treaty? We've breached it. That means the other parties aren't bound or what? What are the consequences of that? So. Uh, it, it's a great question. You know, we, um, we did a brief on this case at the cert stage, and then we also did a brief on this case at the merits stage now in Bond. And the briefs are uh, extremely similar, and they're both making this argument. But there's a slight little difference in emphasis. Uh, when you're trying to convince the court to take a case, you want to say that it's hugely important and will have all kinds of effect out in the world. 
But then once they take it, we really want to say is this is going to have a, basically no effect at all. Don't you, don't you worry. Once you overrule Missouri Holland, really every treaty and statute is still going to be fine. So we're, you know, we're trying to kind of thread a little needle there in terms of uh, emphasis. But um, so why is this arising in 2013 and when Missouri Holland was 1920? From 1937 to 1995, the Supreme Court did not strike down a single statute as beyond Congress's enumerated powers, right? So uh, during that, during those 58 years, um, the court interpreted the Commerce Clause to be essentially plenary. And if the Commerce Clause is plenary, this issue doesn't arise, right? If Congress has power to do everything anyway under its enumerated powers, the question doesn't arise whether you can increase the power of Congress if it's already infinite, right? So only when you get to 1995 and we get some limits on Congress's power, see Lopez 95 and then Morrison in 2000, um, now we get the suggestion that maybe there are some things Congress cannot do with its enumerated powers, and that's what creates the gap. So maybe there's some things that we could promise that Congress otherwise lacks power to do. So it's only, it, this arises after 1995 when there's the new idea that maybe Congress's powers are actually limited after all. That's what really kind of drives this. And in those few cases in which the enumerated powers issue did arise, there was no treaty implications for those. Lopez didn't involve the treaty issue. That's Morrison didn't involve a treaty issue. That's right. Although some yeah. some folks some folks started filing or started writing articles right after Lopez and Morrison saying, you know, maybe we could repass those statutes if we just found the right treaty partner. Yeah. So yeah, people were instantly. Well. Well, again, the important point is that this, this only arises in this little gap. And thus far, the court has only described a very small number of cases that are beyond Congress's ordinary enumerated powers, right? That's why I'm, I use Lopez as my example, guns near schools, but there aren't that many hypothetical examples available to me because there's only Lopez and Morrison, really, right? So, um, you know, I suppose you could say um, uh, commandeering folks per the, um, the Obamacare case, right? Could we enter into a treaty now with Canada promising to commandeer people to go buy whatever, Canadian cars or something? Alex, um, you, uh, you, you know, but, uh, but there aren't that many hypotheticals because there aren't that many cases where the court has said Congress lacks power. You know, I actually had a sort of follow-up on that because I'm not a scholar in this area, but I, I noticed that um, the... the Third Circuit cited Reed versus Covert of the 57 case for the proposition that to the extent that the United States can validly make treaties, the people of the states have delegated their power to the national government and the 10th Amendment is no barrier. Now, that was a plurality opinion. And you cite Reed three times in your, uh, in your uh, amicus brief, and uh, you seem to find support in it. Maybe you can talk a little bit about it. I, I, don't, I don't know the case. Yeah, uh, and it wasn't in Wikipedia. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I, I happened to read it when I, when I was reading the opinion. I, I didn't look it up. So maybe, maybe you can talk a little bit about it. Yeah, thank you. That's a good idea. So um, in Reed v. Covert, uh, we enter into a treaty that seems to promise um, that military spouses will be tried by military commission abroad. 
uh, and um, a military spouse says, well, wait a second, this violates uh, a bunch of my criminal procedure protections, my right to jury trial and so forth from Article 3. And so this case raised the issue of whether you know, if, if we if a treaty promised that Congress would violate the Bill of Rights, did it thus get the power to vi- violate the Bill of Rights? And the answer to that is no. So Reed v. Covert says no. You don't. We couldn't have done that before, and the treaty doesn't change it. And so, as you can imagine, as you can see, these cases are in deep tension. The cases are in deep tension. Um, if we promise to go beyond our enumerated powers, we automatically get the power to go beyond enumerated powers. But if we promise to violate the Bill of Rights, we don't thus get the power to violate the Bill of Rights. And what I'm trying to do is reconcile that. I, I want to say that tension is can only be reconciled by reversing Missouri v. Holland. I say a treaty cannot empower Congress to violate the Constitution in any direction. Okay, uh, next question right up here in the aisle. Uh, Jim Duhome, unaffiliated. Uh, and the question of violating the Bill of Rights. I mean, the Bill of Rights is an amendment to the Constitution, so it amends everything in the Constitution, including the treaty power. So I think, unless you can fit uh, action of Congress or, or claim that action taken violates the Bill of Rights, you can't use that analogy or, or that, uh, that reasoning to, to attack what's being done here. You know, maybe one avenue would be to, to consider whether it might violate the, the due process clause or something in the Bill of Rights. But if not, it seems to me you have to look at organic uh, restrictions in the Constitution itself without reference to the Bill of Rights. As I recall in, in Holland or uh, one of the other cases dealing with the, the uh, treaty power, uh, the court pointed out that under the, the uh, supremacy clause, while this, the clause gives supremacy to congressional acts only to the extent that they are made pursuant to the Constitution, there's no similar limitation on the treaty power. And the courts have said, or at least one court that I recall, said that that means that it's not subject to the otherwise, to the restrictions in the, uh, the Constitution. It seems to me, though, that read literally, that would mean that there's no limits. So maybe one, one approach would be to say that the only possible congressional authority here is under the Necessary and Proper Clause. Um, and, you know, to, to hold what, what the, the, the Supreme Court held in the, in the health care law, to say that at least as applied here, even if this was a necessary exercise, of uh, congressional power to implement a treaty, it was not a proper one because of the nature of the exercise. That's a long-winded question, but I would like your reaction to that. Uh, so, uh, great, there are two thoughts there, or maybe more, but uh, w- one is, um, uh, is Reed v. Cover different because the Bill of Rights is after the rest of the Constitution? Is it sort of amending the treaty power or something? I'm not sure that quite reconciles the cases. Uh, I didn't. I didn't really make this clear. But in Reed v. Covert, there's talk of Article Three as well. So Article Three says all trials will be by jury, and I suppose you could have said, you know, that um, that that's that you could say that well, that Article Three provision is just like the Article One provisions that are at issue 
issue in Bond. But the court was, uh, the court was um, quite comfortable saying, you don't get to do that either. A treaty promising that a, a, um, a trial won't be by jury can't overcome Article Three or overcome the Bill of Rights either way. So I'm not sure that I'm not sure that distinction's quite uh, quite reconciles the two cases. Um, on your supremacy clause point, you're quite right. This, uh, the supremacy clause says uh, that um, it says laws made uh, in pursuance of the Constitution, but it doesn't say that about treaties. You could think that meant that treaties aren't bound by the Constitution at all, but that's not the conventional wisdom. Conventional wisdom is the difference in language was to capture treaties that predated the Constitution. So they couldn't have said treaties made in pursuance thereof because they were wanting treaties that were made pre-Constitution to be law of the land. So that's the explanation for the difference. And people don't think that thus the treaty power is unbound by the rest of the Constitution. In fact, Reed v. Covert's the case that really makes that clear. Okay, up here, please. Um, my name is Michael Zack. I, I wrote a history of the Republican Party uh, called Back to Basics for the Republican Party. In 1867, when the United States signed a treaty with Russia to buy Alaska, there was quite a bit of opposition within the House of Representatives of them subsequently appropriating the money to pay for it. Could you address the question, would a treaty then oblige the House of Representatives to take action on some matter? similar to what happened with Alaska? Yeah, that's an interesting question. It's been, uh, that's not quite our question, but it is an interesting question. Uh, there's been forever since the, um, since the beginning of the, um, since the uh, Constitution was framed, there's been this question of the House's obligation in this circumstance. So the president enters into a treaty promising to do something, the Senate ratifies it, but that thing that is promised requires the House. Uh, so like the House appropriating money, what is the House's obligation as to this? And um, some people have said they have a legal obligation to do the thing. Some people have said they have a moral obligation to do the thing. And some people have said they don't have an obligation to do the thing at all. They have an obligation to decide on, the, on its merits, whether it's worth doing or not. Uh, and you know, I don't, I don't really have a dog in that fight quite. That's not really our issue because um, uh, Congress clearly did have the power to um, appropriate the money. The question is just whether what the attitude of a typical congressman ought to be about that. You know, I think the congressman, you know, if you want my two cents, I think the congressman should care that there's a treaty on the books and should not lightly put us into breach of the treaty. But, you know, I don't think that that's an ironclad rule. And I think if the treaty was somehow outrageous, a congressman could easily decide to vote against the implementation of it. But but it does raise sort of an important uh, point in that Congress does have a fair amount of discretion in implementing um, treaties. Uh, the treaty may deal with a particular subject, uh, but I'm not sure that Congress is limited by the treaty power in passing implementing legislation. It could decide that, yes, uh, you know, the treaty uh, imposes some obligation or duty or responsibility for us to legislate in this area, but uh, we're not going to just limit it to implementing the treaty. We see this as a bigger problem. This is an occasion for us to do more things. So I, I realize that in this case, uh, uh, the uh, government abjured uh, reliance on the Commerce Clause, uh, 
but I am I'm just wondering whether they in fact can do that, whether they can in fact, if Congress draws upon its plenary power to pass a statute, they can say, well, we will sort of concede that the statute is unconstitutional and the court can only look at it under the, uh, under the under the treaty power. Uh, I, I, I don't know if the court is bound uh, to, to accept that uh, if it believes that, 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 that Congress has acted out of mixed motives, implementing the treaty, and also greater concern for uh, uh, police power concerns, and it passes sort of a statute that, that does more than the treaty requires or perhaps even authorizes. Right here. Will Estrada, I'm with the Homeschool Legal Defense Association. Judge Kaczynski, you made a uh, fascinating statement, and I was wondering if you could expound on it a bit more. You said maybe we're looking at the wrong end of the telescope, and maybe we need to limit treaty power to proper objects of the treaty power. And so my question was, were you kind of uh, saying here that we are adopting too many treaties that are expanding the role of Congress, or what... Want to see what else you meant well, by that? I, I am not the expert in this. Uh, um, Professor Rosenkranz has written an article on the objects of the Constitution, so uh, I will turn over to him in in, in just uh, a minute to, 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 to talk a little bit more about that. I was simply startled when I got, um, uh, you know, I'm a journalist. I, I take cases that come along and I dealt with this issue that I was invited to come on today by looking at the case and reading what, what it said. And I, when I got to the part of the uh, Third Circuit opinion where it discusses the treaty power, and the, uh, I was not aware that the current restatement of, uh, of foreign relations says there's basically no limit. And to me, that struck, you know, that struck me as wrong. And it struck me as uh, exactly the kind of uh, 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 interpretation that uh, the court ought to be reconsidering from time to time. So I don't have a prescription for it. Professor Rosenkranz may have uh, more to say about it. Uh, but to me, any statement like this uh, that suggests that a constitution that gives enumerated powers that goes ahead and gives a power, an enumerated power that has no limits, to me strikes me as inherently sus suspect. Uh, but uh, Nick, what, what, what's your thought on that? Yeah, so this is not exactly my issue, but what's the proper um, scope of the treaty power? You know, scholars have written on this, and scholars have suggested that maybe Restatement Third is wrong and that there should be some uh, limit. Um, the problem is it's actually very hard to craft one. So it's very hard to say quite exactly what you think that limit ought to be. We have a kind of an instinct that it should be of, you know, bona fide international concern. But, you know, I actually think it'd be pretty hard to craft doctrine that would adjudicate that line. So I I'm sympathetic to the desire to have a limit. And I think there probably should be and ought to be and is by, and, and that, there, that there is in fact by rights a limit. But um, I, I'm not actually sure how to articulate and I don't think anybody has quite nailed that yet. Let, let some professor who does not yet have tenure write a piece on this, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty hard, pretty hard to articulate limits on Congress's power too. Um, right here we have a question. Thank you. Good afternoon. John Goodman. Um, if there is a gap between what the president 
and uh, the Senate can promise and what Congress can do, does that mean that the president can do it on its own? And wouldn't it be odd to, uh, to think that the framers drafted a constitution that said that the country could you know, promise you know, to do something, but then not leave the, co the, uh, the country any way to do it and would have to welch on, on its deals with foreign governments? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, you know, I think people, that, that's the intuition on the other side, is isn't it odd to suggest that we could enter, make promises that we couldn't keep? Wouldn't that be a disaster, and isn't that a strange suggestion? And, you know, I thought that too for a moment, but I actually think it's not that odd if you think about it. Uh, I think that's true of all of us, and it's true actually of all countries, really, that the, your capacity to promise exceeds your capacity to fulfill promises. It's just a, a fact of life. So, you know, you, maybe you've, um, you know, maybe you told your child that it's uh, very important to keep promises, that it's maybe even like a, you know, a matter of honor to keep your promise. And, uh, you know, your child came home, you know, years later and said, can I take the, you know, car out joyriding with my friends? And you said, well, no. And he said, but I promised. And you, I promised my friends, and you said that it's hugely important to keep promises. It's actually a matter of, you know, honor. And I'm just trying to honor my promises, as you taught me. Now, has any parent ever been fooled by this? <laughs> no. The parent explains that there is a corollary to the principle, and the corollary is don't make promises you can't keep. Don't make promises you can't keep. So yes, you have a big capacity to make promises, but you ought to ask yourself ex ante, is this actually a promise I can keep? That's a, you know, it's kind of my glib answer, but you know, I think that- Well, I have an even glibber answer. <laughs> uh, I think I need to cite that, uh, that great constitutional scholar Machiavelli. Uh, a, a sovereign always must promise things it may not be able to make promises you can't keep. That's part of your duty as a prince, is to lie and lie successfully to other sovereigns. And whether or not you keep your promises or not is a question of uh, your, your uh, um, uh, judgment. But there's no obligation to live up to those promises. I think this is, uh, to some extent, this is looking um, at, at the promise. Uh, uh, to think of it as a promise is really a, a, a uh, it's sort of a construct. Remember what a treaty is. A treaty is a supreme law of the land, just like any statute. I mean, it's not supreme with the Constitution, but it, it is part of our law. It is a very odd law because it is enacted by the concurrence of the president, the Senate only, the House has no involvement at all, and the foreign power. But treaties, once enacted, become domestic laws. And just like all domestic laws, they are subject to the constraints of the Constitution. So just as Congress sometimes passes a statute that turn out, or a state sometimes passes a statute that turn out to be unconstitutional, and you say, well, you made a promise to the people by passing the statute, and you can't keep it. Well, if, if, if Congress, uh, if, if the president negotiates a treaty uh, making the, the Queen of England uh, the head of the American church, uh, you know, good luck with that. You know, she, she, may, she may count on, you know, coming over here and uh, doing whatever the head of the church does, but, uh, but you know, it's not going to happen. We're going to stop it. Uh, so so, um, so I, I don't think it's, a, it's a, um, to think of it as a promise, I think it's a bit of a fairy tale. It's a fairy tale that, that Machiavelli 
uh, warned us, you know, is, is sovereigns will use it, but let's not be fooled by, by the idea that it's a real enforceable promise. Did you say that a treaty becomes domestic law once, the, once it's ratified by the Senate? Absolutely. Well, <clears throat> there, there are a few self-implementing treaties, well, and yes, there are, there are that's laws. that's the question of itself. Absolutely. Because then you, you really do need both houses if you're going to make it domestic no. law. No. For no. if it's not self-executing. Nope. Uh, self-executing treaty is a law, is just like statutes. And, you know, uh, believe it or not, folks, those of us who work for the... See, that, uh, that for, the, for, the, for the federal government, take the oath. When you swear to uphold the law, you are wholly swearing to uphold all of those. Uh, it's first constitutional, of course. Uh, you are to uphold all those laws made by the president and the Senate acting in concert with, uh, with a foreign sovereign. Those are domestic laws, and they're just as good and just as valid as uh, laws passed uh, in the normal way by the president uh, with the we'll two houses. Okay. Uh, sorry, Judge, you, you mean just self-executing treaties, though, yes? Oh, yes. yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, right. I mean, I, I, other than that, uh, you know, pr as I said, promises you make to foreign society, you know, no, they have no domestic law effect. And they're... That's right. Okay. Next question. Right over here. Uh, Chris Hayek, Center for Individual Rights. Uh, we also wrote uh, an amicus. Uh, but put the microphone closer to you. Yes, we also wrote an amicus brief in this case, the Center for Individual Rights. Um, Other Professor, side, right? Pro Professor Rosencrantz. Other side? No, I'm kidding. No, no, no. On, on, <laughs> uh, on Professor Rosencrantz's side, on, on Mrs. Bond's side. Um, Professor Rosencrantz, if, if supposing that the court does not uh, accept your understanding of the uh, necessary and proper clause in relation to the treaty power, namely that uh, Congress has the power to make laws to help the president make treaties, perhaps establish a university for the study of international relations or a, a printing office to print drafts of treaties or something like that. Uh, and, you know, it, supposing it doesn't accept that view, can you think of any other limitation on the necessary and proper clause uh, that might be helpful to Mrs. Bond? Yes, so uh, um, if they don't buy my textual argument, but they are nevertheless nervous about this Missouri v. Holland power, there are some other things they could say. And uh, so the conventional wisdom is that the Missouri v. Holland power, I think this, uh, some lower courts have said this, I believe, um, that uh, once, um, once the tr treaty is valid, then Congress's power to implement, the tr pass any statute necessary and proper to implement the treaty, see Missouri v. Holland, and the tr statute need only have a rational relationship to the promise, to the treaty, in order to be valid. Now, that's extraordinary, really. And um, even if you didn't buy my textual argument and my structural argument, you could say, well, wait a second. There has to at least be a tight nexus between the statute and the treaty. It has to actually be required by the treaty in order to be valid. So I could imagine the court saying something like that. You know, consider on this rational relationship business. A treaty makes a promise. You could imagine the promise could be fulfilled in one of two ways. And one of the ways is within Congress's enumerated powers, and the other one is not. 
under on conventional wisdom, Congress can do that second thing, can go beyond its enumerated powers, even though it had an option that was within enumerated powers that would still have complied with the treaty, brought us in compliance with the treaty. So the court could, I suppose, just tighten the nexus and say this, um, you know, we're gonna have a hard look at whether the statute's really required by the treaty. That would be uh, progress, but it wouldn't be the right answer in my view. All right, we have a question right here in front. Thank you. Uh, I am not an attorney or a judge, but I'm going to ask the judge this question because, Mr. Rosencrantz, you use this in an example, and I have worked with the military. How would this apply since Congress, or the Senate, Judicial Committee, with the recent sex abuse, sex accusations with, from women in the military, in any branch of the military, could Congress take the powers of trial away from the military and put it in the public court? Because you cited, um, I think, uh, Section 3 of the Constitution, all jury, everyone is entitled to a jury trial. I may have the wrong sections, I'm not sure. So could Congress change the military's responsibilities and powers, even if the sex abuse occurred overseas in another country, and take it out of the hands of the military and put it into a public court system. Does that make sense? Is that a decent question? <laughs> it's a treaty. Nick, judge, yeah. you judge the judge. Well, uh, you know, I have to think about the question a little bit more uh, closely. And the, the question we always have to ask is, does it, uh, does anything Congress does offend the Constitution? And obviously, giving somebody accused of a misconduct or a, of, of, of uh, a crime more rights, like a right to jury and so on, uh, doesn't seem to offend any of the Bill of Rights. Uh, what I would have to think about is whether or not that so interferes with the authority of the president as commander-in-chief, because what you have to do is then pull people out of the field uh, uh, and bring them home for a domestic trial, um, uh, I mean, the reason, I, uh, the practical reason why uh, uh, why um, court martials are by military tribunals uh, are that a lot of times soldiers are in the field. You need a quick determination of the facts, quick punishment, and then uh, the, if if they are guilt or quick uh, exoneration, and they can go back to being soldiers or whatever. Uh, and I would think there's at least a serious question as to whether subjecting every military infraction to a domestic um, uh, criminal system, whether that so interferes with the president's authority as commander-in-chief as to, as to be unconstitutional uh, on, that, on, on that kind of ground. Of course, if the president signs a treaty, it sort of diminishes the argument, but sometimes, of course, uh, not the treaty, the, the, the statute, but let's say Congress passes over the president's veto. So uh, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I think I just agree with the judge about that. I think it actually is a kind of a tricky question that turns on the scope of the commander-in-chief power. So it, would that be unduly interfering with the commander-in-chief power? You could imagine Congress, yeah, you could imagine Congress um, saying that every little infraction abroad somehow requires a jury trial here in the U.S. and that that would be, um, that would uh, hinder the president's commander-in-chief responsibilities too much, say. But I'd have to think about that. I think it's a tough question. Okay, no, I have a quick oh, question, of Nick. I think it's sort of interesting. It just don't, don't me. Let's say 
uh, you were doing surgery here, and you said, you know, we, we agree that dealing with chemical weapons is a important subject, is a proper subject of federal relations, but we don't want to have a bond case here. We don't want to have this kind of thing happen. And let's say we're not talking about a court doing it. Let's say we're going back to the drafting table and we're on a committee in Congress and say, you know, let's avoid the bond issue. Uh, I'm just curious, how would you draft the statute to, to do what Congress probably can and should do, but doesn't trench on the constitutional problem here? Well, on current doctrine, I would just say, um, you know, uh, it shall be a crime to use chemicals that have traveled in interstate commerce to, you know, harm people or terrorize people or whatever it is. I mean, I think what you need is a commerce clause hook. The Article One, Section 8 powers are very expansive, very expansive, at least on current doctrine. There's, there's very little that you cannot do under Congress's enumerated powers. And, you know, I think you could fulfill this treaty obligation and virtually every treaty obligation using, you know, enumerated powers, at least as um, currently interpreted.